Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Saturday, December 7, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series and presented in collaboration with the Foreign Policy Research Institute. In this talk, historian John H. Maurer discusses President Roosevelt's reaction to Pearl Harbor and America's entrance into the Second World War. This is the 78th anniversary, 78 years ago, when Pearl Harbor was attacked and the U.S. entered into the Second World War. We're fast coming up on the 80th anniversary in two years' time. And so this morning, I'm going to talk about Franklin D. Roosevelt, his views about Japan. Uh, I'm going to emphasize I'm going to emphasize in my talk this morning the naval and strategic aspects of what happened, why the U.S. became involved in this war in the Pacific against Japan. So this morning, it's going to have a decidedly military flavor to it. I'm going to look at the war plans of the United States and Japan that they developed before the war to fight each other. Now, one of the things I want to leave you with, however, is that Roosevelt had a long interest in Asia. His mother, Sarah Delanor Roosevelt, lived for several years in Hong Kong. The Delano family was involved in the China trade. As a consequence, Franklin D. Roosevelt heard a great deal about Asia and China from his mother. So from very early on, Roosevelt has an interest in the Far East. Well, in 1913, let me get this to work. There we go. In 1913, the young Franklin D. Roosevelt was named to be Assistant Secretary of the Navy by Woodrow Wilson. Now, Assistant Secretary of the Navy is the number two position, civilian position in the Navy Department under the Secretary of the Navy. And here he is, uh, a 31-year-old legislator in Albany, the state legislator in New York, being appointed Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Roosevelt was born on January 30th, 1882. So here you see what he looked like at this time. What a young man. You know, compare that, you know, to what we just looked at there. And this uh, engraving of Roosevelt depicts him around 1940 or so. Well, uh, and of course we're familiar with this, with that image you know, of Roosevelt. I think most of us, when we think of Franklin D. Roosevelt, think of this image. But remember, again, here he is as a young man. An immense amount of responsibility for a 30-something at this time. Well, there he is, that handsome young man, going on. Now, one of his relatives, Theodore Roosevelt, had also been in the New York State Legislature and had been Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And so Theodore wrote to Franklin and said he's very much pleased by the appointment 
And again, Theodore says, hey, you're holding a position like I've had. You're following in my footsteps in some way. And again, you will enjoy yourself as assistant secretary of the Navy and that he's sure that Franklin will do capital work. Don't you love that adjective, capital? <laughs> we don't use that anymore. You know, capital idea. I mean, boy, you would really date yourself. <laughs> if you use the word uh, capital as an adjective like that, somebody would think that you must be coming from the past in a time machine or something, don't you think? Anyway, but I, I love that phrase. I wish we could bring it back, capital work. One of the things that's remarkable, too, is when you look at uh, Theodore here, you see the pince-nez glasses and the part in the hair, very similar to the young Franklin. Maybe in some ways Franklin is modeling himself on Theodore. Well, uh, Franklin did enjoy himself being assistant secretary of the Navy. Here you can see him reviewing Marines. He came to New York to launch a battleship uh, across the East River, Brooklyn, uh, the battleship Arizona. Here he is with the crowds while the Arizona is being launched. <laughs> down the ways, there it is steaming down the East River. Well, the time that we're talking about when he's assistant secretary of the Navy is a period when there's a clash between the great powers of the world. The great powers are vying with each other. It's going to culminate in the First World War. But before the First World War, there was also a major war that was fought in Northeast Asia. A war between Russia and Japan in 1904 and 1905. The Russo-Japanese War competing imperial ambitions of Russia and Japan over who's going to control this area, Manchuria, Northeast China, and Korea. Which of the great powers are going to control this region? Is it going to be Japan or is it going to be Russia? Both countries are interested in this region. There's a power vacuum. Imperial China at this time, the empire of China, is falling into disarray and is going to be overthrown. There's a power vacuum there because of Chinese weakness. And as a consequence, well, the great powers are coming in to fill that vacuum. And it leads to war. In February 1904, Japan begins the war against Russia by attacking a Russian naval squadron at a base in Port Arthur, a surprise attack with torpedo boats against the Russian battle fleet that's out in Northeast Asia. Sound familiar? The attack was not particularly successful. It didn't do much damage to that Russian fleet. There's Port Arthur right there. Not only war at sea, however, there was also war on land, and there was a major battle, Battle of Mukden. Very much looks like what the First World War is going to happen. Trenches, uh, rapid-fire artillery, large casualties coming. Japan on the offensive had moved up through Korea and into Manchuria, trying to push back the Russian armies. Well, the Russian government, to try to win this war against Japan, decided to reinforce their naval forces in the Far East by having their fleet in the Baltic steam all the way around to Northeast Asia. An 18,000-mile voyage. Imagine that. 
They had to take on coal at various places along the way. Again, this is an age in which warships are fueled by coal. So you have to go to coaling stations. Now, the Russian Baltic Fleet, as it's known, as it went from the Baltic Sea, went into the North Sea. And in the North Sea, it thought it saw Japanese destroyers coming at them. So they opened fire and sunk a fishing fleet of British trawlers in the North Sea. Wow, this caused a big incident. A number of, of uh, British sailors, uh, uh, fishermen were killed. The Russian government had to launch an apology and also indemnify uh, the British for the loss of life. If they hadn't, Britain would have come into this war. I've looked at the records of the British fleet commander, Charles Beresford. Uh, his fleet was following the Russian fleet all the way down to the coast of Spain, just hoping to get the orders to attack that Russian fleet. If the Russians had not apologized and indemnified the loss, the result would have been a war at this time between Britain and Russia. Uh, but Russia's fleet, the Baltic fleet, was able to go around, steam all the way around to Northeast Asia, and there to be sunk by the Japanese in the Battle of Tsushima Straits on May 27, 28, 1905. Major naval battle. The Japanese admiral in command of the fleet that sunk the Russian fleet is Admiral Togo. And he issued to the fleet, as it was about ready to engage the Russian forces, this statement. That signal flag up there was an indication that this is the statement that the admiral is sending to his fleet. The empire's fate depends on the result of this battle. Let every man do his utmost duty. Now, those of you who are familiar with British naval history will realize that this sounds very similar to the words that Admiral Nelson gave to the British fleet before it defeated the French and Spanish fleets off Cape Trafalgar on October 21st, 1805. Again, Admiral Togo is considered Japan's Nelson, the great, great naval leader. The Russian Baltic fleet is destroyed. Seven battleships of the Russian fleet are sunk. It's a lopsided battle in this. Well, Togo, his fleet behaves in a very aggressive way in destroying that Russian force. Now, Theodore Roosevelt gets involved in this war. He brings the two sides together, Russia and Japan. And he becomes the mediator of bringing an end to the war in the Treaty of Portsmouth, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. That's where the Russian and Japanese peace delegations met to negotiate an end to the war. So Theodore Roosevelt, the United States, is playing a major role in bringing an end to this war between Russia and Japan in 1905. And for this role, Theodore Roosevelt, our president, receives the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, the United States at this time is also involved in the competition of great powers. And we have to look and see who were the great powers that the United States were most, was most concerned about at this time. Now, American military and naval planners gave color code names to various countries. The United States is blue, true blue. Red is Britain, black is Germany, orange is Japan. So they will refer to war plans as the red plan, or the black plan, or the orange plan. Now, who are the threats? Red, the British Empire. At the beginning of the uh, 20th century, 
there were still fears that the United States might be involved in a great war with Britain. After all, the U.S. is the rising power on the world stage. Britain is the world's leading power, the world's superpower. Controls one quarter of the world's landmass and population. This is what international relations experts like to call power transitions in the international system. And often, these power transitions lead to war as rising powers challenge the international status quo. So American military planners thought, well, someday we might fight Britain. And down to the 1930s, American naval and military planners, army planners, planned for wars against the British Empire. More likely, however, than a war with Britain was a war with Germany and, or Japan, or Germany and Japan together. Black would threaten the U.S., in the Western Hemisphere, and Orange, Japan, would threaten the United States in the Western Pacific. So these two countries as well, from the beginning of the 20th century, before the First World War, American planners are thinking about wars against Germany and against Japan. Well, for American planners at this time, our main concern is how to protect the Western Hemisphere, what became known as hemispheric defense. Again, protecting the Western Hemisphere, the new world, from the old world. Today, uh, in the parlance that we use in thinking about military operations, we call this anti-access and aerial denial. How do you like that as a mouthful? Uh, now, you know, if you go around after today's talk and say, oh, anti-access and aerial denial, everybody will go, oh, you must be really up on what's going on today in thinking about war plans that the U.S. have. <laughs> today, we think about how China can deny access to American naval forces to the Western Pacific. Well, at this time, it's the United States wants to build up a navy to ensure that the Western Hemisphere is secure. Again, the focus of American planners is to defend, defend the new world from the old. And you can see this. You can see this in this cartoon of the time. Uh, what do you see? You see European powers lined up, looking through their telescope. Uh, they want to come and somehow uh, take possession of territories in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, what's standing against them? Well, a fleet of battleships. And look at the caption. Let it be written so it can be read. How do you make clear to a power that might want to expand into the Western Hemisphere? How do you make clear to them that they should not do that? You better have a powerful navy. And as you can see on the battleships, you see the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine laid out by President James Monroe, written by John Quincy Adams, his Secretary of State, that Europeans should not interfere in the Western Hemisphere. And so to uphold, uphold the Monroe Doctrine, the United States has to have a strong navy. And with that strong navy, you are also defending what? Liberty. Liberty in the background there. The republics of the Western Hemisphere have to be defended against the authoritarian monarchies of the old world. Well, as you can see, the Navy is considered the first line of defense for the United States. And Franklin D. Roosevelt, as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, is responsible for building up that American naval power to be able to defend American interests in the Western Hemisphere.
Well, in 1906, and then again in 1913, there were crises in relations between Japan and the United States. And the question was, would these crises lead to war? In 1913, the crisis was triggered by the California state legislature passed legislation to restrict land ownership by aliens. This was directed against, against Asian Americans, and in particular against Japanese who were living in California. And so the Japanese government and Japanese people were enraged by this discriminatory policy by the California state legislature and governor. Uh, the federal government in Washington didn't approve of this legislation because they knew, they knew that this could lead to war with Japan. Well, the Japanese public is inflamed by this. Uh, there were protests from the Japanese government against this legislation. And so in early 1913, soon after Franklin D. Roosevelt has become Assistant Secretary of the Navy, he's involved in all the planning and thinking, what if, what if, a war occurs between Japan and the United States. So just several months into office, he's thrown into this position of great responsibility and potential danger. Well, Theodore Roosevelt has advice for young Franklin and writes from Oyster Bay, Dear Franklin, I don't want to tell you your job, but nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, let me give you some advice. He says, I don't anticipate a war with Japan, but it may come. And if it does, it'll come suddenly. Just like the Russo-Japanese War with that surprise attack on the Russian fleet at Port Arthur. In that case, the United States, don't divide the fleet. Keep the fleet prepared. Keep it concentrated. In the Russo-Japanese War, the J Japan was able to beat Russia because the Russian naval forces were scattered between the Far East and Europe between Northeast Asia and the Baltic Sea. If the Russian fleet had been concentrated, Japan would not have been able to beat Russia. But because their naval forces were divided, Japan had the opportunity to beat the Russians at sea. So Roosevelt Theodore is saying to Franklin, don't let the fleet be caught separated, divided between the two oceans, between the Atlantic and the Pacific. And at this time, when the crisis happens, the Panama Canal has not been completed. So there's no short road, no shortcut from the Atlantic to the Pacific. For a fleet in the Atlantic to get to the Pacific, it has to go around South America. Again, Russia's fate should be warning to the United States, don't divide the fleet. And he ends it by saying, give my love to Eleanor, his niece. Okay, well, uh, Franklin took to heart this. Uh, he wanted to make sure that the U.S. Navy was ready. He wanted to concentrate American naval forces that were in China, move them to the Philippines. He wanted to move American battleships that were scattered on the east coast of the United States from the Caribbean all the way up to New England to bring them together and concentrate them in case they had to move around to the Pacific. Uh, Franklin was very much concerned that this could lead to war and wanted to make sure that the U.S. Navy was ready, that its fleet forces were concentrated. Well, Franklin there, he's very much the hawk in the Wilson administration at this time, in May of 1913, as this crisis is erupting. Well, on the other hand, though, there's some doves. William Jennings Bryan to the left, he's the Secretary of State. And next to him, Josephus Daniels, the Secretary of the Navy, Franklin Roosevelt's boss. 
He's the head, civilian head of the Navy. Both of them, they don't approve of what Franklin uh, wants to do in concentrating the forces. Uh, William Jennings Bryan said, this is just too provocative of Japan. It makes it look like we want a war. Meanwhile, he's negotiating with the Japanese. He doesn't want to play up that there could be a war. He wants to downplay the idea of a war scare. Well, the deciding voice, of course, is the president, Woodrow Wilson, who sides with Brian and Josephus Daniels. Uh, at this time, at the height of this crisis, there's a leak and various preparations that the Navy and the Army want to make are leaked to the newspapers. Wilson is furious because it looks like that he's out of sync with his military leaders. He's very angry about this, and he instructs the Army and the Navy that they are no longer to have joint meetings to discuss war plans. At the height of a crisis, he says, the military is doing things that will be too provocative. No, I won't permit it. Well, uh, Franklin the Hawk uh, doesn't get his way because the president weighs in and says, no, there will be no war. And the U.S. will not be doing the type of preparations that Franklin wants to do. Well, there was another great war that takes place in this time. And of course, it's in Europe that begins in the summer of 1914. The Great War, World War I. And in that war, the United States blue goes against black. But instead of defending the Western Hemisphere, the U.S. deploys large mounts of troops, over two million soldiers. American soldiers are in France by the time of the armistice at the end of the First World War in 1918. As Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin D. Roosevelt is very much engaged in moving these American forces, protecting them as they go across the Atlantic to take part in the battles in Europe. Again, here, the United States is not defending the Western Hemisphere in a defensive way, but moving American power to Europe over there to fight against Germany. So the blue against black, well, uh, this is something that American planners had never thought that we were going to project so much power to Europe. This came as uh, uh, something that was very different from what American planners had planned for before the war. But it's an important turning point in American history because here the United States is moving its military power, providing for the security of the new world going to the old world. Well, after the First World War, how do you rebuild the world, reconstruct the world? And so what you see in the 1920s is you see an effort by statesmen around the world to try to bring order, peace to the world. And so you see the establishment of the League of Nations at this time. While the United States does not join the League of Nations, many other countries do, Britain, France, Japan. Also, uh, in 1921-22, in Washington, there's a series of treaties that are arranged with regard to Asia, a five-power treaty, which curtails the competition between Japan, the United States, Britain, France, and Italy in naval weaponry, a four-power treaty of the United States, Britain, France, and Japan to uphold the territorial status quo of Asia, and a nine-power treaty that looks, brings together the countries of Asia and major powers from the outside to respect the territorial integrity of China. It's had a revolution, new republic there. You also have the Kellogg-Briand Pact, named after Frank Kellogg, our Secretary of State, and the French statesman Briand, that outlaws war as an instrument of policy 
Countries should not wage war, go on the offense. The only wars that are legitimate are wars of self-defense. And also an attempt to restore the international economy as countries go back to the gold standard. Japan entering in on the gold standard, the U.S. and Britain, trying to reduce tariff barriers so countries can have access to resources and trade with each other. Because the thinking is countries that trade with each other won't fight each other. And again, settling war debts and reparations from the First World War. So you have an international order being rebuilt, creating a liberal, more peaceful international order during the 1920s. Franklin D. Roosevelt, now out of office, Republicans in charge in Washington during the 20s, understands that, that countries want to avoid what had just happened, the big bloodletting. And so now the hawk has become very dovish. And in an article for the magazine Asia, he writes that, hey, most of the principal causes for why war might occur between Japan and the US, well, they've gone away. They've been removed. And eventually, they'll be eliminated. Several years later, in 1928, while he's running for governor of New York, uh, Franklin writes an article for the journal Foreign Affairs of the Council of Foreign Relations, giving the Democrats' view of what American foreign policy should be. Uh, in 1928, he is elected governor of New York. He sort of bucks the trend of that election, because in that election, Herbert Hoover won on the national scale, a national uh, 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 election. The Republicans did well in that election, but Franklin was able to counter that by being elected here in New York. And in that that article, he highlights who are the people that think that a war between Japan and the U.S. might happen. And he says it's only excited admirals consider the possibility of these wars, of the U.S. invading Japan or Japan invading the U.S. What you see is during the 1920s, Roosevelt is not hawkish, quite the reverse. He is optimistic. He's optimistic that there will not be another great war in Asia or a world war. Well, we know what happens. We know the history. 1929, the stock market crash, the Great Depression, and Roosevelt moves from Albany to Washington, D.C. in March of 1933 as President of the United States. And this is one of these wonderful, iconic photographs of Roosevelt. And you see him there again with the Ponce glasses looking out from his car and the cigarette with the cigarette holder and that, that smile of confidence that the American people needed in those dark days of the Great Depression. Well, Roosevelt, though, still takes a big interest in the Navy. And here you see, for a fleet review in May of 1934, you see President Roosevelt with his wife Eleanor, his mother Sarah, and uh, his son and daughter-in-law, uh, James Roosevelt, aboard the cruiser Indianapolis right here in New York. Uh, to help in recovery, the economic recovery, Roosevelt funneled resources to naval shipbuilding to create jobs and industry in the United States. So Roosevelt at this time is moving, financing the beginnings of an American naval buildup. Under the Hoover administration, Hoover was very strict in cutting the Navy's budget. Uh, very strict indeed. And so Roosevelt comes in and sees that Building warships is one way to employ people. Well, you have at this period of time a return to great power competition. Just as Roosevelt is becoming president of the United States, you see increasing danger around the world. In Japan, you see 
military leaders taking more and more control over the Japanese government and policy and strategy. You have the assassination of political leaders who want to promote cooperation with the United States, Britain, to uphold the international status quo. Uh, New York Times uh, correspondent in Tokyo, uh, Hugh Bias, wrote a wonderful book published in 42 called Government by Assassination. How is it that Japan moved from the peaceful Japan of the 1920s, the Japan of party politics and civilian rule, to military rule? Don't you just love the idea that there's a book written by a journalist whose name is Bias? (laughs) I love that. Well, and here's Emperor Hirohito riding the white horse. When emperors ride white horses, not good. (laughs) That's Napoleon, you know, riding his white horse. Again, surrounded by his military. Japan has taken a turn away from cooperation in the period as you see the breakdown of the treaties that had been developed during the uh, 1920s. Manchuria in 1931. Japan already has Korea as part of its empire from 1910. But now they want control over Manchuria. The resources there, coal, iron, to fuel Japanese industry. In a time when there's a breakdown of international trade, when tariff barriers are going up, countries start to look and say, okay, if I can't trade to get what I want, then maybe I have to seize the territory to get what I want. This, of course, is in violation of the four-power treaty, also the nine-power pact negotiated at Washington. And so you're seeing a breakdown of that treaty system. The world is pointing more toward war. Japanese forces moving into Manchuria. Well, then in 37, six years later, Japan becomes involved in a major war with China. 1937. Where do we date the beginning of the Second World War? More often than not, we think 1939, our European focus. But we should remember that by 1939, already for two years, Japan and China are fighting each other in what is known as the Second Sino-Japanese, Second China-Japan War. The first war between China and Japan occurred in 1894-95. Japan beat China. Taiwan became part of the Japanese empire at that point. Well... This war is an immensely costly war. It's hard to get numbers to think about the numbers of fatalities, but historians typically agree on that round number that about 20 million Chinese lost their lives during this war between 37 and 45, and that over a million Japanese lost their lives in this war. This is not a small war. Japan liked to refer to it as the China Incident. This is not an incident. This is a big war that's going on. Competing nationalisms. Who's going to be the leader of Asia, the master of Asia? Is it going to be China or Japan? The leader of nationalist China at this time is Chiang Kai-shek. He's been successful in bringing more order to the disorder in China. This is one of the things that the Japanese fear, that a strong China will move against Japan in Manchuria, maybe even Taiwan. And so this war begins in 37 with troops firing at each other and then leading to a full-scale Japanese invasion of China. The Chinese armies are beaten 
in most of these battles. But nonetheless, Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists don't concede. They lose the battles, but they stay in the war. Japanese army moving into China. Again, a fierce fight is being waged. While the Japanese win their battles, for the most part, nonetheless, they're taking losses and they can't break the will of the Chinese people and Chiang Kai-shek to stay in the war. And of course, this iconic photograph, which comes from film footage uh, of the time, shows this young child, baby, crying in the ruins of the Shanghai Uh, railway station. This is something that's being broadcast in the United States. The American public is seeing this big war taking place before their eyes when they go to the movies and they will see the film footage in the news reports at the uh, movie theaters about this big war in Asia. Again, Americans tend to forget about these wars between China and Japan that had happened. But again, this is a precursor for the larger global war that would break out in 1939. Well, on October 5th, 1937, after the Japanese invasion of China, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, in a major speech in Chicago, says, the world seems to be having an epidemic now of lawlessness. These treaties are breaking down. By the way, when Japan took over Manchuria, they were condemned by the League of Nations, and so Japan walked out of the League of Nations. So. What Roosevelt is saying is these treaties that have been developed during the 20s, they're all breaking down, and he specifically mentions them in his speech in Chicago. And he, this speech has become known as the quarantine speech because he says when an epidemic happens, what does the community do? They try to quarantine. Can you rope off this conflict somehow to prevent this disease from spreading around the world? And he says war is a contagion. Again, they use the metaphor of disease. And it can engulf states and people far away. In other words, this war might begin in Asia, but it might not end in Asia. This speech uh, gets a great deal of publicity around the world, has a big impact on Hitler. Hitler sees this as the first shot by Roosevelt against not only Japan, but also against Germany, that the U.S. will stand against German aggression if a war breaks out in Europe. By the way, at home, Roosevelt is criticized for this speech by people who say, why do you have to inflame opinion? And and what, what does a quarantine mean? Do you mean that the U.S. Navy is going to blockade Japan? What does this quarantine mean? And Roosevelt was never specific or clear about it. But again, he's highlighting that the world has changed. By the late 1930s, there's a greater danger of war and that this war can spread away from Europe or Asia to include the U.S., just as the First World War did. Well, and again, he wants to highlight this American view that we can somehow live peacefully in the Western Hemisphere while the rest of the world is engaged at war, well, that won't happen. As he says, the war will come and involve us eventually. The U.S. won't be able to remain at peace here in the Western Hemisphere. The new world can't be insulated in some way from the wars of the old. Well, Hitler's war begins in the summer of 1939 in Europe. Begins with a... Uh, German, Nazi Germany, and Soviet Russia attacking Poland, destroying Poland, partitioning it. And then in the spring of 1940, German offensives in Western Europe that score a big success, taking over Norway in the north, Denmark and Norway, and in the west, Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, 
France falling to the Germans. Again, these photographs from the time highlighting the French defeat, German army marching down the Champs-Élysées in Paris, Hitler visiting Paris with his art historian and architect. Well, at this period of time, great danger. Europe, the continent of Europe, is under German control. Britain is fighting for its life, isolated, with no great power allies. Well, uh, at this period of time of great danger. And you can see it reverberates right away in the U.S. Because here you see from uh, June of 1940, New York Times headlines. A huge U.S. Navy, National Service, Selective Service, a two-ocean navy. The American public and government see that the fall of France, that's a real toxin, an alarm bell, that the U.S. is in great danger and we have to start arming as quickly as we can and, and increase dramatically the size of the American armed forces. The Roosevelt administration is in the forefront of wanting to build up a big navy, what they call a two-ocean navy. And in a relatively short period of time, of, of just uh, over the summer of 1940, the, the U.S. Congress votes overwhelmingly and Roosevelt signs into law a bill to greatly increase the U.S. Navy and also to start enlarging the Army and Army Air Forces as well. The fall of France is a major event in that it alarms Americans. Even those who don't want to fight in Europe or Asia understand that to defend ourselves in the Western Hemisphere, there has to be a major increase in American military power. And so this is something that has bipartisan support, whether for defensive or to project American power. Americans can agree that the armed forces have to be larger than what they have been. So a major increase is taking place at this time, beginning in the summer of 1940, of American military might. The United States is starting to harness its large economy to start building large armed forces. And one of the ships being launched right here in New York uh, is the battleship Missouri. And here you see going down the waves into the East River. And the senator from Missouri, Harry Truman, with his wife and his daughter, Margaret. Margaret is the one that broke the bottle of wine on the battleship, Missouri. So these big naval buildup that's taking place at this time. And of course, the senator from Missouri becomes president of the United States in 1945. Um, leads to this big navy that it's going to play such a critical role in the Second World War. And here you see aircraft carriers and battleships that are the spearhead of the offensive in 1944 against Japan. And of course, the victory in Tokyo Bay in September of 45, where that battleship Missouri launched here in New York is there where the surrender of Japan takes place. Again, the decision in 1940 after the fall of France to build up American naval power is what enables the US to carry the fight to Europe and to Asia in the Second World War. Again, rearmament begins before Pearl Harbor. And in the United States, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt running for an unprecedented third term, breaking the tradition of George Washington that American presidents only serve two terms. How does he go about portraying to the American people the necessity for this? Well, here you see one of these wonderful posters from the time where Uncle Sam is saying, we're drafting you 
Just like selective service is going to be set up to draft young men to fight, well, you're being drafted to be president of the United States because you have to stay and finish the job because Roosevelt is the leader that Americans want. That's how it's being portrayed in this great new crisis. He came to be president because of the Great Depression. Well, now he's wanted to stay on as president because of the danger of a great war. Well, his opponent is Wendell Wilkie in 1940. And Wilkie is a formidable um, opponent in this election. He was a Democrat who became a Republican. He is campaigning in his hometown in Indiana. He gives quite a fight. But nonetheless, Roosevelt wins handily in the Electoral College. And you can see here uh, Roosevelt's electoral vote uh, at this time. So on the first Tuesday of November of 1940, Franklin D. Roosevelt is elected for a third term to be president of the United States. Now, Roosevelt is very strategic-minded. He's very global-minded. He sees the interrelationship of one area to the world to another area of the world. Uh, he is remarkable in this regard as a president, as a civilian leader. He has a real strategic sense. And again, it comes from being Assistant Secretary of the Navy during the First World War, where he had to deal with strategy, with preparing the Navy for war, for making sure the Navy can fight in the First World War. Again, he understands global politics in a way that, that many, many politicians would not be able to do. He's also been in charge of a fighting service, the Navy. So he understands the requirements of that. And I want to highlight this, that that early history of Franklin D. Roosevelt from the era of the First World War is very important for understanding his actions later on. Well, after the election, Roosevelt wants to have what are our alternatives? What are our big strategic alternatives? And so the chief of naval operations, Admiral Harold, nicknamed Betty Stark, Betty Stark wrote up uh, a strategic plan. What are the options for the president? Um, Chief of Naval Operations is the top uniformed uh, naval leader in the United States. And so this is the beginning of his memorandum for the Secretary of the Navy and for the president. And what are America's uh, uh, courses of action here, COAs? Well, number one, defend the Western Hemisphere. That, all Americans can agree on that. How about go on the offensive against Japan in the Pacific and fight on the defensive in the Atlantic? Equal commitment, or D, dog, offensive in the Atlantic against Germany. This is the one that the administration wants to follow. Uh, and it's often referred to as plan dog. Now at this time, Japan and Nazi Germany are allied. And so what ha would happen is if the US goes to war with Germany, if Japan honors its alliance obligations with Germany, it means that if the US goes to war in Europe against Germany, it will also be faced by a war in the Pacific against Japan. So this plan, plan dog, requires that the US in projecting its power to Europe to help Britain against Germany, that is it possible to negotiate some agreement with Japan by which they break their alliance obligations with, uh, with Germany? So keep that in mind. Well, on June 22, 1941, Hitler moves to attack the Soviet Union, to destroy the Red Army to consolidate his control over all of Europe. This is again a major turning point 
in the Second World War. Rather than continuing to pound away at the British, he has now moved German forces to the east to take down the Soviet Union. Uh, Roosevelt understands the importance of this, that this is a major turning point and that the U.S. has to align itself with the Soviet Union as well as Britain to help defeat Germany. It's required to form a grand alliance, as it becomes known, the United Nations, to fight and take down Nazi Germany. And here you see in August 1941, a summit meeting between Winston Churchill, Britain's prime minister, and Franklin D. Roosevelt. And behind him, you see Betty Stark, the chief of naval operations on the right. Uh, behind Roosevelt, uh, Admiral Ernest J. King, who's going to become chief of naval operations through most of the Second World War. You can see Averill Harriman in there between the two admirals, and Harry Hopkins over here on the left. Again, part of the discussions that go on uh, in this meeting between Roosevelt and Churchill is how to deal with uh, Japan. Uh, if you go to YouTube, you can see film clips of this church service that takes place. You can see Roosevelt and Churchill there seated, crews, American and British sailors together at this church service on the stern of the British battleship, the Prince of Wales. By the way, this battleship, the Prince of Wales, is going to be sunk by the Japanese off of Singapore on December 10th, 1941. Um, the two leaders here are concerned about how to deal with Japan in relation to the U.S. moving closer and closer and closer to active involvement in a war against Germany. Well, here we look at the Pacific, and the concern that Churchill and Roosevelt have is that Japan, its army, might turn north against Siberia. Stalin and the Red Army is fighting for its life in Europe. It needs to draw forces away from Asia to defend Moscow. Japan's opportunity is to strike north. That could destroy the ability of the Soviet Union to resist Hitler. It would encircle the Soviet Union. In addition, there's a concern that Japan might move south against the British Empire, which is also fighting for its life. North Africa, the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, northern Europe against Germany. If Japan, Japan could tilt the balance in this war to enable Nazi Germany to do better against either the Soviet Union or the British Empire. So this is the concern that Roosevelt has at this time. How do you prevent that? Our American Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, is very much of the same mind with the President, with President Roosevelt, that the U.S., the U.S. has to take a hard line against Japan. Because if we don't take a hard line against Japan, we will be seen as weak, and the Japanese Navy will move against the British. Again, there's also the fear that the Japanese Army might move against the Soviet Union. So do you see how what's going on in Asia can have a big impact on the war in Europe. These are interconnected in the minds of Roosevelt and Churchill. What do you do to prevent Japan from attacking either the British Empire or the Soviet Union? Well, American public opinion at this time, while they're skittish about going to war with Germany, when the Gallup asked this question of the American people uh, in September of 41, they say, you know, should the U.S. take a hard line? against Japan, even if it means risking war. And what you see is that the American public, over two-thirds say yes, that the U.S. should take a harder line. And as you can see, under 20% are more skittish. Um, and of course, there's always some Americans who can't make up their mind. 
Well, uh, how do you prevent this from happening? Well, Roosevelt stations the American battle fleet in Hawaiian waters. In June of 1940, the Pacific fleet was uh, on maneuvers in Hawaiian waters. They were supposed to come back to San Diego, to the West Coast. But because of the fall of France, and Roosevelt wants to deter Japan from moving against the British Empire, he says, let's keep the fleet in Hawaiian waters. That'll be a clear signal, a deterrent to Japan acting aggressively in the Western Pacific. And so the American fleet, now you see the battleship Arizona, stays in Hawaiian waters in the mid-Pacific. Now, at the Naval War College, where I teach, uh, war planners gamed out various scenarios for war with Japan. And uh, there's the old schoolhouse, now a museum, and uh, Loose Hall. And here's the gaming floor of Pringle Hall, where uh, naval planners would put down uh, ships and the rest and game out different types of battles uh, uh, between the Japanese and American fleets in support of the idea of a war plan orange against Japan. Now, what's the basis, the, the war plan orange? Well, there are several versions of it. I, I want you to know there's several war plan plans orange. But this is the typical scenario that we thought of, that the Japanese would move south into Southeast Asia, seize the Philippines, go against the British. They would then establish a defensive bastion. They would go from offense to defense to defend their newly acquired territories. The U.S. would then have to move across the Pacific from Hawaii, the advance base, go toward the Western Pacific to cut the Japanese home islands off from their conquests in Southeast Asia. And there would probably be a big battle in the Marianas. Now, our commander of the fleet at this time in Hawaiian waters is Admiral Richardson, J.O. Richardson. And there you see him on the cover of Time magazine. Um, Richardson doesn't think that his forces can carry out any version of War Plan Orange. They're just not ready for that. And so he says, hey, the war plans are predicated on the Navy we would like to have rather than the Navy we actually have. He came back to Washington twice to express his concerns to the leadership of the Navy and to the president. And there you see Admiral um, Star, um, uh, on the right, uh, Richardson on the right, with the Secretary of the Navy, uh, Knox, and with uh, the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Stark. Well, um, Richardson also got in the talk with the president. And he says to the president, to, to President Roosevelt, the presence of the fleet, it might influence, deter a civilian government, but Japan is led by military leaders in actuality. Uh, the presence of the fleet won't exercise any restraint on Japanese actions. The president comes back and says, I, I, despite what you believe, Admiral, the presence of the fleet in Hawaiian waters, it, it's having this effect. He's hearing this from our State Department, Ambassador Gru, who is saying that, yes, the fleet does have some impact on Japanese actions at this time. Richardson's persistent. You know, he still doesn't know that, you know, the fleet, uh, it's not ready. It's not really disposed in Hawaiian waters to be able to carry out War Plan Orange. Um, he wants to bring the fleet from Hawaii back to the West Coast. Roosevelt says to him, you can convince me of that, but you have to be able to give me a way of portraying it to the American people and to the Japanese government 
that we're not weakening in our stand toward Japan. In other words, we're not stepping backward. We're not relenting on our pressure on Japan. Uh, Richardson is persistent. He goes on and he says this. This is really actually offensive. Where he says, I feel I must tell you that the senior officers of the Navy don't trust and have confidence in the civilian leadership of this country in case there is a war with Japan. Roosevelt's very much offended by this. By the way, it's not true because many of the senior officers of the Navy are very much on board with the president and have a great deal of trust and confidence, like the chief of naval operations, Admiral Stark, Admiral King. So this is an untrue statement. It's reflecting Richardson's views, not that of other senior naval officers. Well, what is Roosevelt's response? This is happening in 1940 before the election. He says, this is an election year, Admiral. Just keep that in mind. I can take stronger measures. I can do things to increase the readiness of the fleet, to get more sailors for you uh, after the election. Well, uh, Tamara Richardson says that's not good enough. He would later say, I like to work with people whom uh, I don't like to work with people I can't trust. And I didn't trust Franklin D. Roosevelt. Well, anyway, this breakdown in trust and confidence between the admiral for major forces in the Pacific and the president. Also a breakdown of trust and confidence between Richardson and the chief of naval operations, Admiral Stark, leads Richardson to be relieved of command ahead of time. He is replaced by Admiral Husband Kimmel as head of the naval forces that are out there in the Pacific. Again, I want to highlight, though, that there is this breakdown where Roosevelt and Admiral Richardson are not getting along with each other, and Roosevelt is moving to make sure that there, are, that there is a civil military dialogue, a civil, civil military dialogue. <laughs> well, the Japanese Navy, what are their war plans? Well, one of the great admirals of the Japanese Navy between the two world wars was Admiral Kato Kanji, and he says, wow. One of the great lessons that Japan learned from the First World War, you have to hit the enemy hard, right up front. Quick encounter, quick decision. Battle's going to be won at the very beginning of the war. And again, how do you do that? You seize the offensive. Otherwise, the war will become prolonged like the First World War did. And you won't, even if you win, you'll still be a loser because nobody wins from a protracted war. Japan needs to win a quick war. Has to be decisive. And one way you do that is build these super battleships. Japan builds two battleships that are the largest in the world, the most powerfully armed. They're the Death Star, you know, of the time, the Yamato and the Musashi. And the Japanese naval leaders say, hey, if we build these ships, if we withdraw from the constraints of arms control, the five power treaty negotiated in Washington, and we build two of these super battleships, This force will enable us to defeat the British and American navies. This is where Japanese naval plan, because these guns will outrange the the guns of the battleships of the Americans that they have. These battleships will be more powerful than anything that Britain and the United States are building. In addition, Admiral Yamamoto, and here you see him from 1934, says, what's the task of the Japanese Navy at this time? To build up their strength. And again, at some point, not too far away, Japan, if it builds up its strength, naval strength, at some point, it will be able to humiliate Britain and the United States. That Japan will be able to force Britain and the U.S. out of East Asia. And for the Navy, what's its principal job at this time? Here, Yamamoto is different from other naval planners. 
He does, he's not a big believer in the big battleships, but Japan has to build up its naval aviation, its air, air offensive capability. And indeed, Japan does during this time. In the interwar period, Japan builds up a very powerful naval air arm. They're the leaders in the world in so many ways. Now, right at the time of Pearl Harbor, the Japanese Navy achieves what amounts to an equality, a parity, with the naval forces of the United States, Great Britain. As you can see in battleships, more or less equal. But in naval aviation, Japan is much stronger than the United States or Britain. Japan has six large fleet carriers that are the spearhead, the striking force for offensive operations. Japanese naval leaders at this time, Admiral Nagano, their equivalent of chief of naval operations, head of the Navy service, he says, the Americans are building up their Navy, this two-ocean Navy. We're getting weaker relative to the U.S. By contrast, the U.S. is getting stronger. In the passage of time, what will happen? We won't be able to survive. By 1943, when that American shipbuilding program for the two-ocean Navy becomes a reality, the result will be Japan has no chance, no chance in a war against the United States. Again, this dimension of, for Japanese decision makers, what the naval balance of power will be, is important in driving Japanese decision making to go to war. Again, he says in December 41, confident that there's a chance of winning this war, but in the long run, Japan has no chance of winning. Well, Admiral Yamamoto, he's in command of the Japanese fleet, operational fleet. What are his thoughts about this? By the way, he was a veteran of the Russo-Japanese War and fought at the Battle of Tsushima where he was wounded and lost several fingers. The lesson which impressed him the most from the Russo-Japanese War was the fact that the Japanese Navy launched that attack against the Russian forces at Port Arthur at the beginning. It's a great strategic idea, most excellent. But it's regrettable that it wasn't followed through, wasn't determined enough, didn't do more damage to that Russian naval force. And as a result, Japan didn't get an early quick victory over Russia at sea. So what are Japanese plans? Again, just as we thought they would be, strikes to Southeast Asia, to Wake Island, but Yamamoto includes this strike by a carrier force on the American fleet at Pearl Harbor. Now, this is the cover of the Army-Navy game at the end of 1941. You can see it's 50 cents. That's a lot of money. <laughs> You can see here, you know, the cadets, Corps cadets, midshipmen, very proud, carrying their banners. Inside this program, they have this photograph of the Arizona. As it says, she plows into a huge swell. And again, what's the caption underneath? Despite the claims of air enthusiasts, no battleship has yet been sunk by bombs. <laughs> Uh, th this is just so creepy and scary. <laughs> you know, you say, hey, we're so, we're, this is hubris, you know, as the Greeks would say. Well, we know what happens to the Arizona uh, here. By the way, on the day that the Army-Navy football game was played, President Roosevelt from Warm Springs, Georgia, uh, told reporters that before too much longer in the new year, American boys would be fighting in a war. 
and the public immediately reported that and said, where's the war going to be in Asia and Europe? Um, nonetheless, Roosevelt is taking the country toward war. Well, those six big carriers of the Japanese Navy moved toward the Hawaiian Islands, launched their planes. And what signal is sent to the Japanese fleet? The same one that Admiral Togo had given at the Battle of Tsushima. Again, that big strike right up front against the American Navy. The beginnings of the assault on Pearl Harbor. The destruction of the battleship Arizona by a bomb that penetrates its armored decks into the magazine. Destroying that battleship beyond repair. Over a thousand men lost the memorial today. New York Times headline that the war has begun with Japan's attack. President Roosevelt on December 8th going to a joint session of Congress asking for a declaration of war. And the speech that is given to him, prepared for him by his staff, and how he then edited it. And again, it's uh, fascinating to look how he changed it um, here, where it says, yesterday, December 7th, a date which will live in world history. <laughs> the president, eh, not good enough. I'm putting some dashes in there. And again, if you go listen to the speech, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. You know, it's very well delivered. Uh, you can see he really owns it. Uh, he also adds in to uh, the uh, speech some other things about just the Americans are angry and righteous might will go through to absolute victory. I, I, again, one thing that's interesting here is the phrase premeditated invasion. Go back to his article of 1928 in Foreign Affairs where he says, oh, neither side thinks about invading the other. Uh, that word invasion is part of, of um, Roosevelt's um, uh, language. And again, adding some uh, inspiring words. Again, the inevitable triumph in the war against Japan. Well, several days later, on December 11th, 1941, Hitler goes to the Reichstag and asks for a declaration of war against the United States. And in his speech, he says this. He says, Roosevelt has insulted him and has been rude since 1937 on. But he doesn't take it personally. <laughs> I simply can't be insulted by Roosevelt. Because why? I regard him like Woodrow Wilson as, as mentally unsound. <laughs> we know that this man, Roosevelt again, and he refers to Waffen as this man, you know, who's behind him, really moving him? It's the forces of international Jewish finance. That's what really is controlling Roosevelt. And he's working against Nazi Germany, but also against Japan. And after years of negotiating with this deceiver, Roosevelt, the Japanese government decided we're not going to be humiliated anymore. And all of us, the German people, he said, and I believe other de decent people, decent people around the world, uh, they regard Japan's actions with great appreciation. Again, Japan has decided to strike that great deceiver. Hitler wants to support his Japanese ally in this. And under the terms of the alliance, he wants to go forward and declare war on the U.S. at this time. And why does he do this? Because underlying it all, President Roosevelt is aiming at global hegemony, an unlimited world dictatorship. And Germany, Japan, and Italy have to together fight against this American domination of the world. 
Well, Roosevelt, just a couple days after Pearl Harbor, said the U.S. and the American people have learned a terrible lesson, that there's no impregnable defense. The Atlantic and Pacific Ocean, well, they're barriers, but yet they're not as strong barriers as we would have liked to think. That aggressors can come up in the dark and strike us. Again, hemispheric defense is no real defense. And that we can't measure, again, by looking at those oceans and feeling secure. American security in the Western Hemisphere requires that America be involved in Asia and Europe, that the new world has to bring its power to bear into the old world to be secure. This is one way that, at the time, Americans and maps were envisioning this. This is the work of uh, the Yale professor, Nicholas Speakman, um, that the U.S., if it clings to hemispheric defense, the result will be the old world will be controlled by military dictatorships that will be able to come after us. Instead, the U.S. has to project its power, project its power to be secure. Well, in closing, this is a major turning point in American history. The United States has to use its power in Asia and in Europe to form alliances with other countries, to promote mutual security of those that are most vested in the peace. That if the U.S. withdraws, if it withdraws from the world, the result will be greater danger to the United States. We might think that we can avoid troubles by staying at home. But the reality is the troubles will come to our home if we're not forward engaged. And so after this war, the U.S. becomes involved in a number of alliances and pacts. The Rio Pact of 47, the Atlantic Alliance, uh, and then the Japanese Alliance in 51. All of these things to try to promote a more secure and peaceful international order. And it's Franklin D. Roosevelt, as President of the United States, understands the transformation that's taken place in the international environment and how the U.S. has to play that larger global role. Thank you very much. I have been giving some uh, questions here to uh, uh, look at. Uh, do you think FDR was motivated to enter the war to create a, a greater economic activity at home? Uh, that's not his main motivation. It's more the security concern that Nazi Germany might win the war. Now, of course, once you start spending a great deal of money on defense and you also start uh, uh, conscripting Americans into the armed forces, the American economy takes off. During the Second World War, the American economy grows dramatically during the war. So there is a, a major economic uh, increase that takes place. But the main motivation for Roosevelt is to defend the U.S. against this danger that he sees from, from Nazi Germany. But it then has a spin-off effect of uh, the U.S. economy growing during the time. Did FDR understand how vulnerable Pearl Harbor was to attack? Was FDR aware of any intelligence that suggested an attack was imminent? This is a very controversial uh, subject. Admiral Richardson, when he talked with the president about the fleet at Pearl Harbor, his concern, one of his concerns, was that the fleet at Pearl Harbor might be attacked by the Japanese. American naval planners had gamed out. There had been fleet exercises in which Pearl Harbor was attacked. So it wasn't beyond our 
understanding that Japan could do this. But it was always minimized because the distances are so great. The Pacific is a large ocean, and, and it was thought that, that that would just be too far of a reach for the Japanese. For the Japanese to be able to do that, they have to do underway fuel replenishment, something that was hard to do in 1941. Very few navies had mastered that. So Pearl Harbor was considered relatively safe. Richardson, though, did raise it as a, as a point, a problem, which is that the U.S. fleet could be attacked there. Richardson's main concern, however, was not an attack on Pearl Harbor, but the readiness of the fleet, that there was not enough training being done of the fleet of the sailors so that they would be more ready for war and that there weren't enough sailors, uh, the ships weren't fully manned. And so he believed that the fleet's readiness to fight would be greater by being on the West Coast than in Pearl Harbor. So there was a concern about that. Now, was there a fear of an attack on Pearl Harbor? Yes, but it was tended to be minimized. Where American planners are looking is at the Western Pacific, at the Philippines and Southeast Asia. That's where they think the Japanese attack is going to come. It's Yamamoto looking back to the Russo-Japanese War who wants to have that surprise blow right at the beginning against the American fleet. So um, it, it's something that they were aware of, but they tended to minimize that as, as a danger. Is it true that the Japanese army and navy still don't want to surrender after the atomic bombing, but the emperor commanded it? This, again, is another very controversial subject about how do you determine what, what, what impact uh, various uh, factors had in determining the Japanese decision-making to end the war. Um, toward the very end of the war, the Japanese army and navy ministers, the military leadership, wanted to continue fighting. Um, the civilian leadership in Japan wanted to negotiate an end to the war. The big concern was unconditional surrender. What did that mean? Did it mean that the Emperor Hirohito would be treated as a war criminal? Um, the British and some American leaders wanted to say, we will not treat Hirohito as a war criminal. We'll make an exception that unconditional surrender does not mean that. If that had happened, there might have been a, a, an earlier capitulation of the Japanese. But the American leadership didn't want to do that because they thought that, again, that would be a weakening of the American position and encourage the Japanese to continue fighting. Hirohito himself is a very complex figure. He eventually does order uh, um, the uh, uh, surrender of Japan, overruling the military leaders. There's an attempted coup, by the way, to prevent the emperor from broadcasting that the Japanese have to surrender, but that's defeated. Uh, so the atomic bombing, certainly, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki plays a role in shifting the emperor toward peace. Another factor, though, is that the Soviet Red Army invades Manchuria in 19, August of 1945, just at the same time that the atomic bombs are being dropped. And so the Soviet Union coming into the war against Japan is another factor that leads to it. And a final factor is that Hirohito to the thought that the Japanese military would be able to inflict such heavy losses on the Americans that the American will to fight would break down and we would give up on some of the terms of unconditional surrender, like an occupation, military occupation of Japan uh, and war crimes and the rest. But the Battle of Okinawa showed that the Americans were going to stay in the war even if they suffered heavy casualties. And uh, uh, today, historians think that Hirohito believes he had been misled by the Japanese military leaders. 
um, the American will wasn't broken, despite the heavy losses that the United States had, both on land and at sea uh, at Okinawa. So Hirohito lost some of that trust and confidence in his military leaders. So there are several factors at work at play here. The cumulative effect of all of them is for the emperor to say, we have to close down this war. Uh, one traditional naval war tactic was a blockade. Did that concept enter into American war plans against Japan? Yes, it did. Uh, the way we thought this war would end against Japan under Orange is eventually the U.S. would get close to Japan. Our naval forces would go across the Western Pacific, and we would impose a blockade on Japan. There would be no need for an invasion of Japan. Uh, and that Japan would negotiate an end of the war at, at that, that time. So, yes, blockade was an important element. And in the Second World War, the U.S. does um, undertake a campaign of unrestricted submarine warfare against Japanese merchant shipping, also mining of Japanese home waters as our forces move closer. So, in effect, we are blockading Japan uh, at the uh, uh, end of this war. What was Japan's ultimate goal in the war? How far do you think they wanted to expand? That, uh, a, a, good, a good question. Japan wants to be able to be the dominant power in Asia. Their war is not just against the British Empire and the U.S., but also, as I'm trying to highlight here, it's caught up in uh, Japanese-Chinese relationships. And this is something that's important down to our own day. Um, today in China, the a communist regime there is able to mobilize Chinese national opinion against Japan by harkening back to this war in which so many Chinese were killed. So keep in mind that this is a war in which Japan not only wants to expel the British Empire and the U.S. from the Western Pacific, but also they want to be the dominant power in Asia with regard to other Asian powers, including China. So part of the Second World War is not just the West against the East, it's also within the East of fighting between China and Japan. And again, we, we have to remember this because this is very much alive today in Japanese and Chinese uh, relationships. Um, how did the people respond to the Pearl Harbor attack uh, in Hawaii um, had, it, uh, had it not attained statehood? They have strong allegiance to the U.S. at this time uh, as in the next territory. Again, uh, a very good question. You know, one of the big concerns of American military planners was the large Japanese-American uh, population in the Hawaiian Islands. One of the concerns of General Short, who is the U.S. Army commander there, is sabotage of American aircraft. So when the Japanese aircraft attack Pearl Harbor, they see American aircraft all lined up closely together, something of a sitting target. For an air attack, um, um, the best type of target to go after because they're all bunched together. Now, they're bunched together because General Short wants to protect against what he would see, what we might today call a terrorist attack, uh, a concern that the uh, people of the Hawaiian Islands, the Japanese population of the Hawaiian Islands, might not be loyal to the United States. So again, this is a major concern at the time of, uh, of American planners. And it helps drive to understand why the Japanese attack against American air power is so successful in this attack, is because of a fear of an internal 
internal uh, 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 uprising. Uh, American planners at this time were aware of a spy network within Hawaii running out of the Japanese consulate that was keeping track of American uh, naval warship movements. So at th this time, there's this concern about the loyalty of the Japanese population, Japanese American population in the Hawaiian islands that is driving some of uh, what, what we're doing uh, there. Um, if the Philippines were already free, do you think the Japanese would still have felt the need to attack the U.S. at Pearl Harbor? Uh, in other words, if there was an independent uh, 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 Philippines at this time. Uh, one of the things that the U.S., a little bit of background here. By the 1930s, uh, the American people had come to the conclusion that they didn't want to control the Philippines anymore and they wanted to uh, uh, give over to the Philippines uh, uh, its independence. And so we were withdrawing from Asia at this time. This is part of what is going on because the Philippines were seen as something that was too expensive uh, to maintain uh, and to defend, especially against Japan. So one of the um, um, concerns that American military planners had and the American people was, let's withdraw from this exposed position in the Western uh, Pacific. Now, as the war in Europe happens, uh, and the greater likelihood and fear of war with Japan, one of the things that happens is that we decide to build up American military power in the Philippines because the Philippines, right in the center of Japanese sea lanes between the home islands and Southeast Asia, picture that on a map, uh, the Philippines right there as a base can disrupt that Japanese sea lines of communication. And so the U.S., starts deploying its submarine force. Over half of the U.S. submarines in the U.S. Navy on December 7, 1941, are in the Philippines. So in case of war, those submarines can go out and start sinking Japanese shipping. The U.S. is also building up a powerful uh, air uh, force in the Philippines. It was hoped to build up a force of B-17 four-engine bombers, which from the Philippines would be able to attack the Japanese home islands or at least defend against a Japanese invasion. Uh, American planners are increasingly optimistic that by the spring of 42, the U.S. will have enough military power in the Philippines to defend, defend against the Japanese. And of course, we sent one of our uh, uh, generals, most illustrious generals, General Douglas MacArthur, out to the Philippines to organize the Philippine Armed Forces as well as the American forces uh, uh, out there. So the Philippines... We're trying to withdraw from the Philippines during the 30s, but under the crisis of war, we start instead to go the other way, which is to increase our ability to defend uh, the, the Philippines. Why did the Japanese fail to make a greater effort to shut down the Panama Canal? Was it not strategic? Oh, the Panama Canal is, is absolutely critical and um, for movement of warships from one ocean to the other. Uh, this vulnerability of the Panama Canal was recognized from the very beginning when Theodore Roosevelt moved to um, build the canal. And so one of the things we wanted to do was not only build a canal, but also fortify it, make sure it was well defended. Uh, the commanders in the Panama Canal Zone in 1941 at the outbreak of war, 
they were very aggressive in their patrolling and all the rest. I mean, they were very much alert when the war warning came from Washington that war with Japan was imminent. Uh, the commanders in the Panama Canal zone were all ready for it. They were looking, you know, to protect it. So um, uh, the Japanese would have faced uh, resistance if they could get there. The other thing is, of course, the Panama Canal way on the other side of the Pacific Ocean is quite a long way to go for Japan. In fact, just going to the Hawaiian Islands is very difficult uh, for them to do. So the likelihood of a strike on the Panama Canal is low, but the commanders there were very much ready for any trouble uh, if they were uh, attacked. Um, the question here is about today. The Trump administration is now rebuilding our military. Will China be affected by this the same way Japan was affected in the 30s by our military buildup? On this, I have to issue a disclaimer. Um, as long as I talk about history, I, I, I'm, I'm good to go. But, but as soon as I, I, I have to talk about something that might be controversial, I have to say that I'm an employee of the U.S. Department of Defense and the Navy and all the rest. Uh, but my views represent only my views. So anything I say does not represent... Of course, that's obvious, right? I mean, what a silly disclaimer. But nonetheless, um, today, uh, under both President Obama and President Trump, there has been uh, a recognition that the wars in the Middle East have maybe distracted the U.S. from a larger, a larger security problem, and that is that of China. And so when uh, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she uh, uh, talked about uh, a pivot to Asia, that we have to try to move away from thinking our main security concern is the Middle East to where the rise of China its growing economic and military technology is a greater threat to the U.S. in the long run. And so as a consequence, under the Obama administration and then under the Trump administration, there's been greater attention uh, to the Western Pacific and China. Uh, the United States, of course, sees in China a formidable enemy, a great power. And in recent years, the language I put up on the slide, a return to great power competition. That's what people are talking about in Washington today, that somehow the international environment has deteriorated, where the U.S. is now being challenged by other great powers. And in particular, China and Russia are mentioned as the great powers that are determined to challenge the U.S. on the world scene. Uh, China has certainly made some significant gains in its military capabilities. It has some very accurate uh, ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, uh, submarine force, uh, growing nuclear deterrent, uh, all of those things, all of those things are very powerful weaponry to use uh, if ever there was a, a war between uh, China and the U.S. Um, so this is something that uh, is a grave concern to the U.S. Navy today. How forward deployed can our forces be? Uh, one of the big takeaways from this period of time of 1941 is that the U.S. fleet in Hawaii ended up being vulnerable to a Japanese strike. The British naval forces at Singapore, uh, the battleship Prince of Wales and battle cruiser Repulse were sunk on December 10th, 1941, by Japanese land-based aircraft coming out of uh, what is today uh, Vietnam. So how far forward do you want to go with your large surface ships? Because the further forward you go, 
the, the more dangerous the environment becomes because of the types of weapons that China could use. So it's a, it's a major concern of American military planners, uh, this rise of Chinese military power uh, at, at this time. So this increasing concern about China's threat is one that is a continuity between the Obama administration and the, and the Trump administration in seeing that there is a, a growing danger from Chinese uh, armed forces. Um, the Marshall Plan helped Europe recover after World War II, where there are similar initiatives in place in China and or Japan to aid the recovery and prevent another conflict. Um, the answer is a definite ness. Um, yes and no. Um, we were giving aid to China, uh, nationalist China, after in the late 1940s to try to help them build their, their forces for a conflict with the communists, with Mao Zedong. Eventually Mao won in that Chinese civil war on the mainland and, and Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists had to retreat to Taiwan. So we did give military and economic assistance to uh, the nationalists. But um, the question, that the debate among historians and at the time was, were we doing enough to support him? Uh, should we have been more uh, um, generous in support for him? And at the time, there was a debate within Washington about this, and the debate continues to rage uh, down to the current day, that if the U.S. had done more to support Chiang Kai-shek, would he have been able to prevail in the fight against Mao Zedong? Uh, again, that, that's something that historians, as well as policymakers of the time, have divergent views. With regard to Japan, um, there's an occupation that takes place in Japan, but soon after the end of this war, the Second World War, another war occurs in Asia, uh, the Korean War, right? Uh, 1950 to 1953. And this is a big war between who's fighting? U.S. on one side with our South Korean allies and allies from other countries against North Korea and China. Remember that the Korean War is a war between the United States and China, communist China. It's a big fight that takes place. It's estimated that over 300,000 Chinese are killed by the United Nations forces led by the U.S. in the Korean conflict, including one of Mao Zedong's sons. So um, uh, there's a big war that takes place there. And in support of that war, Japan's industry becomes very important. So you see the beginnings of a Japanese economic recovery beginning in the early 1950s that takes place in support of the war effort right across the Tsushima Straits uh, in, in Korea. So there, there is um, um, attempts in both China and Japan after uh, the, the war. One uh, ends up being successful in promoting uh, Japanese economic industrial growth. Uh, the other in China, because of the civil war in China, well, it, it ends up uh, uh, failing. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.